Welcome back to the Relentless Minds podcast. I am your host, Lori Jimenez. I created this platform with a sole mission, and that is to inspire people of all backgrounds to create the change they wish to see in their lives and in the world by sharing the examples of those who are. As a listener, you will hear the stories of ordinary men and women with extraordinary stories of overcoming adversities in order to experience the life they dream of. All of these individuals share a common interest. They desire a change for the better, and they are in a relentless pursuit to create that for themselves. If you're looking for inspiration to overcome challenges in your own life, to create a life that you desire to have, then you have come to the right place. You see, the truth is, people everywhere are fighting for what they believe in, and together, with relentless action and mental strength, I have no doubt that we can fulfill that dream. Today in this episode of the Purposeful series, I interview Aidan Batar, who was a Somali refugee who fled with his family from Somalia during their civil war in 1992, where they experienced constant threats to their life and ultimately led to the death of his two-year-old son due to the conditions of the war-torn country and the family's inability to access proper medical care. Aidan chose a life of service once he arrived in America and has dedicated his life to the work of helping other refugees resettle and properly integrate in America through the services of the resettlement agency he works with. In this interview, Aidan shares his experience of fleeing the civil war in Somalia and seeking refuge first in Kenya and finally the United States. He also brings to light the truth behind the current refugee crisis worldwide and the desperate state that many families are experiencing as a result of this. Having dedicated nearly 25 years of his life to working with refugees and having first-hand experience of his own, Aidan reveals the realities behind who the refugees are as people and what they are truly hoping for by seeking refuge in America. Welcome, Aidan. Thank you for agreeing to share your story today of fleeing Somalia during their civil war and for opening up a discussion on the current refugee crisis we are experiencing in America and around the world. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it for giving me this opportunity. Absolutely. I would like to first start off with your story. Why did you decide to leave Somalia in 1992 and what events precipitated that decision? There was a civil war that broke in 1990 and that was right after I graduated from university and uh, and then when the civil war broke, uh, it was not safe for anywhere in Somalia. So we were moving place to place. It took us almost two years until um, we lost our oldest son, who was only two years old. And uh, the day that uh, I bury him, uh, the next day I decided to that it's not a place for us in Somalia anymore. And and, and, and with a consultation with my wife, uh, I decided that I would be the one to leave first and then figured out a way to get my wife and, uh, and the baby we had at the time to leave them out of Somalia. What was the situation that caused your son to die? So my son was two years old and uh, he was playing around and we were not at the time living in our home. So we were in a refuge in another family member's house where there is a lot of family members living in that house. And it was really crowded, uh, that home. And, uh, and, and I wasn't home at the time. I was uh, outside, you know, and looking for food for my family and, and, and milk for the children. Um, so my son was running around. And uh, unfortunately, as he was running around in the, in the home, uh, he, uh, outside, there was a big boiling 
water that was on, on a fire and uh, he tripped it in that fire area and then the whole water you know uh, dropped on him on from the his neck down he he burned with a hot boiling water and uh, uh, there was no uh, medicine there were no uh, doctors at the time in the hospital and uh, you know it's not even safe to go to the to the uh, to the hospital so uh, you know, when I came back, uh, you know, I saw my son burn and everybody was there in the home. And, and I immediately ran and, you know, get somebody who from the from the pharmacy. And so we put some cream on, burn cream on him. And uh, I looked for a doctor in the, in the community. So there was a Somali doctor came to us. And uh, so he gave some medication and that cream and... Uh, um, it was right in front of us that my son was burned and we could not do anything to, to save his life. And uh, he was in that condition for almost about a week. Um, and then finally uh, he passed away. And, and that was the, the most hardest thing that, you know, during that war that was going on in Somalia, when, I, when we see our son, uh, you know, lost his life in front of us as a result of uh, what was going on in the country and, and that's what led us to not leave that country anymore. Was it hard for you guys to access medical medical care because of how the country was in that time? It was not safe. I mean, you couldn't go outside of the area where we were living because there was a you know war going on, there was a militia in, in every corner of the city and you you would be killed based on who you are. and. Uh, uh, they don't care what your situation at the time is, and uh, it was not safe to even go to the to the closest hospital. Wow. What was the quality of life there in Somalia for you and your family and other civilians during the initial years of the civil war? It was it was very horrible. Every day um, we were seeing you know horrific events that we did not want it to experience or to witness. People have been dragged and killed every corner of the city and there were no basics. There were not enough food. There were no water, electricity, uh, or any, any, anything. So basically every day we were surviving. We didn't know what was gonna happen the next day. So we were living day by day um, and we didn't have any way to protect ourselves nor we have any protection from anyone. Uh, we were praying every day to God that, you know, to save us and uh, put all our trust as we always do in, in God. And, uh, you know, and that's how we were surviving. People were fleeing the city in masses, you know, going outside. Some people have been killed as they were fleeing. Some people were kidnapped as they were fleeing. Some people were turned away, turned back to where they were. and. Uh, some people, as they were trying to escape the mortar shelling, the artillery, and, uh, you know, indiscriminate, uh, you know, firing uh, for, to civilians. And, and there were no international peacekeepers or government forces to protect anyone at that time. So it was very, very difficult circumstances for those two years that we go in place to place. You and your wife spoke, and you both decided it would be the best to flee. And how was that journey the moment you decided now you're going to leave Somalia and try to find a safer place to be? Um, when living a war-torn zone area, you don't want to take 
your whole family with you to to travel because not knowingly what's going to happen with you know on the way so my wife and i had a lengthy discussion about that and also our family members and uh, you know we all agreed that you know i'll be the first one to uh to go and to see how that road looks like if it's safer um and and i had to had a, a very you know discussion with my wife and i said that you know i'm going to go and try to see if this is a good road and safe for all of us to to go but first let me go and try and see if i if i if you don't hear from me that means you know i didn't make it but uh, as soon as i go to a safe place and i have a mode of communication you know i will call you and and figure out a way to get you out of there so that's what we agreed and uh, and i took that road with uh, some people that were traveling strangers that i did not know um you know i had some small money with me that i had to hit inside you know my clothes uh, i only had the this the clothes that i was wearing and did not have any spare clothes or or anything else um it took me a while you know uh, we we had to leave in the in the middle of the night um while it's dark so the militia cannot see us as we were leaving the city uh even the 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 the, the vehicle that we were using the lights were off so we were kind of like uh traveling in the dark and uh with uh, you know uh flashlight guidance and something like that until we went to the next city and uh uh you know we stayed there for a night um and then uh the next night only at night that's where people travel during the day uh it is very risky to travel and uh um to make the story short um all the places that we were going through we were passing by different tribal land luckily you know i spoke some of the dialect of this different tribal lands that we were going through until until we reached the border town between somalia and kenya which was uh, really a safe place at that time and when i reached there uh, i had to uh, you know uh, there were no phones or anything like that there was only those military radios that people were using to communicate so i used that communication to phone back my my wife and tell her that i reached safely in the border town after several days that she didn't hear back from me did you arrive in kenya at that point so that was the border town in somalia that we were there and then the next day i crossed the border i didn't have no passport no visa uh nothing i have to bribe my way in to kenya um and then i stayed the border town of kenya side for uh you know several days and then proceeded to nairobi um you know and um it was very difficult i had to head uh, inside a truck that was transporting cattle and because otherwise the kenyan police they will see me they will send me back to somalia so i hid in that truck uh for several days until we reach uh, nairobi so when i reached nairobi uh you know uh, i was all smelling like cow you know all the clothes that i was wearing were dirt i had to throw it away and 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 the money that i saved i buy some clothes and i found some friends and family members there in nairobi who uh, provided me a place to stay and uh, um and then that's when i started you know figuring out a way to bring my wife and my son so there was a, a small plane that was going from nairobi to mogadishu every day 
transporting medicine and uh, you know and some of the aid that they were taking to Somalia at the time. So uh, with some friends and I, we went and talked to the pilot and we give some money and ask uh, to bring my wife and my son back. Uh, initially he hesitated, uh, but after we talked to him, um, he agreed. And then uh, he told me, you know, to have your wife ready at the airport and uh, then he will pick it up. So immediately I ran to the radio uh, and, and I radioed my, my wife and I say, you know, tomorrow morning you and uh, our son, you need to be at the airport. You know, it was a small uh, airstrip, uh, so they need to be there. So uh, the, 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 the plane will pick them up. So they were there and the plane left. Uh, I was praying to God all day in that day until in the afternoon when the plane come back. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, the moment I saw my son and my wife were getting off the plane, you know, uh, it was very, very happy moment at that time, knowingly, um, my, my family was safe and come and they reunited with me. My wife and my son, they're also happy to see me. And then at that moment, you know, they didn't even have a passport or visa or anything. Then we had to deal with the immigration uh, in Kenya to let them in. Uh, finally, after discussion and, 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 and talking, and uh, they, they, they let us in. So we went in the city and uh, they came to the place where I was staying at the time with some of the family members. And then uh, the next day we went and registered with the UNHCR to get our refugee papers. And uh, um, so that's how our life, you know, in Kenya started. This was 1992. And from Kenya, you were granted visas, was that, to go to travel then to America? It was a, a lengthy process. So we were in Kenya and uh, we were part of, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of Somali and other refugees that were in Kenya at the time. Um, and uh, so we had to find a way to, to, to get out of that country because we did not want it to stay there because it was not possible uh, to live because Kenyans, number one, you know, they could not give us a permanent residency to live in that country, uh, you know, nor to provide us, you know, uh, uh, a decent uh, place to stay so we can work and have a life. It was impossible for that. So my brother-in-law at the time was living here in, uh, in the United States in Utah. And uh, so we called him. He was a student, basically. He didn't have anything to, to share with us. But at least we asked him, you know, uh, to contact uh, the uh, uh, resettlement agencies here in the U.S. to see how we can get out of uh, Kenya. So luckily he came and met uh, uh, a representative at Catholic Community Services here in, in Salt Lake City. And because he had uh, asylum status, him and his family, he was able to sponsor us through Catholic Community Services. So he sent the sponsorship papers. And uh, as soon as we received those sponsorship papers, the uh, uh, the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program accepted us, and uh, you know uh, we waited. The, we went through the process for about almost two years, um, and then finally, you know, we were approved to come to the U.S. as a refugee, uh, and and that was in 1994. What were your hopes when coming to the United States? What were you guys hoping now to acquire? At that time, uh, our goal was to to go to a safe place where we can raise our family and uh, 
and now ha and have our life back. You know, that was the first thing that was in our mind to to go to a safe place, regardless what it is. I didn't care at that time whether the U.S. or uh, anywhere in in the world to go to that would accept us. But you know, when the U.S. accepted us, you know, we were so happy because we knew the United States, uh, the greatest country in the world, that. Uh, you know, could offer us uh, uh, freedom and, and, and a safe place to uh, education and, and now we can rebuild our life. So, uh, you know, that's the hope and the dream that we were carrying with that we were carrying with us at the time when we came to 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 the United States and to Utah. I did not have a penny in my pocket and all my wife. None of us had any money. And uh, but money was not a motivator for us. It's just that we wanted a place. So when we came to Utah, um, uh, our, uh, our in-laws and, uh, you know, some friends and uh, volunteers, you know, met us at the airport in Salt Lake City and welcomed us and also the Catholic Community Services staff members who came and, and welcomed us. And that was the happiest moment of our life that we knew that, that we we're in a better place, that we could start our life again. And then we were taken to a city called Logan, a small town, uh, uh, outside of Salt Lake City, and uh, then immediately we were shown our home where we're going to be living. You know, it was a three-bedroom house, and uh, you know, uh, fully furnished, and has everything that we needed to start a new life. Uh, even was there was a lot of clothing, and even was ready to eat meal waiting for us on the dining table. And we went there, and we were given our keys, and we were said, you know, this is your home. This is your new home. Wow. And this was provided to you by the Catholic Services Center. Yeah, Catholic Community Services rented that home for us and fully wow. furnished and, uh, and given to us. And so this was the help that you were given when you arrived in America. Yes. What were, and I want to I tap into that so we can look at the different ways that you received this help. But what were some Besides that, what were some of the challenges that you faced during your resettlement? What were some of the more difficult things in this period of time for you and your family? Um, you know, there's several challenges that uh, we encounter at the time. Of course, uh, I spoke some English. My wife did not spoke uh, English, and uh, she had to deal with that, the language barrier. And, uh, um, and also... Uh, Transportation was another thing. We did not have, uh, you know, a car at the time. So we had to heavily rely on people giving us rights because transportation in Logan it was a small town. You know, you cannot get, uh, you know, public transportation to get whatever you are. There was one bus, but the, the, the routes were very limited. So we couldn't go where we wanted. So sometimes we have to walk. Sometimes people have to come. Uh, volunteers have to help us and so forth. And then, um, you know, I, I had a, you know, a degree from my home country, uh, you know, a law degree that I had, um, and, uh, and I, I wanted to go back to school, so immediately was not available that for me, so I will have to go back to school, improve my English, and uh, so that took me a little over a year to take the intensive English program, um, and also I had to work as well, so I could provide to my family, and Sometimes, you know, uh, the shifts that I was working, I was not able to see my children. Uh, so, uh, you know, I may go to work uh, while they were sleeping and I come back while they were sleeping. And so it was very difficult school. And, you know, my schedule was very 
tight. I did not have time for my family and so forth. Uh, but I knew that that was something that I have to do for a short period of time until, you know, um, I have improved, you know, my English and also get the transportation. So after a while, and, you know, all those things improved, but initially, you know, um, the first year was a, a little bit tough. But, but that is normal. Every, everyone, when they go to a new country, you would have to learn the language, you would have to adapt to the, the, uh, the language. Uh, a place of worship also was another issue. We, there was not, um, you know, um, there was a small mosque at the time in, in Logan, uh, but uh, that was not enough for us. So, uh, you know, and also a place to buy, uh, you know, uh, culturally appropriate food was another thing. And uh, uh, sometimes, you know, we have to travel to Salt Lake City to look for those stores to buy food or, or other states to call other people to send it to us. So the challenges, uh, you know, were, were so many, but, uh, but those were not uh, very important for us. I mean, the main important was us for that we were in a safe place, that, you know, we were rebuilding our life. I had a job so I could take care of my family, so I don't have to worry about, you know, who's going to pay our next meal. Um, you know, at least those things were the, the main important things for us. Incredible. And I know that um, Catholic Services Center, they helped you guys a lot throughout this process. And in 1996, it looks like you were offered the opportunity, right, to work with them and to also help more refugees that were in the same situation as, as you. Um, and it's been now 25 years that you've been mm. with them. Yes. Incredible. Almost. So I would like to tap into that because you come firsthand with firsthand experience of fleeing from a country and finding refuge in this country and also dealing with the resettlement of other refugees that are coming to this country. Um, I would like to know who makes up the majority of refugees that are seeking refuge? So um, in 1996, uh, when I was offered uh, to work at Catholic Community Services, there was a lot of uh, refugees that were coming from Africa at the time, especially from Somalia. So I spoke their language and I also uh, worked in the refugee camp in Kenya when I was there as a volunteer. So I knew, and also being a refugee, that I had all this uh, experience that I have. So I immediately accepted that job and I became as a, as a case manager, I started, and uh, working with families and uh, helping them with getting their documentation, uh, registering their children to schools, helping them with jobs, helping them navigate with uh, all the resources that were available in our community. And, uh, um, you know, at the time, you know, we would have a lot of Somalis coming, a lot of Sudanese coming, uh, also a lot of uh, Eastern European that were coming. So I was able to work with all the different populations that Catholic Community Services were helping at the time. And uh, so, um, and, and we have to resettle like over, I don't know, maybe at that time, I believe was between six to 800 refugees that were coming just through Catholic Community Services and the state as a whole, we're getting almost close to 2,000 refugees at that time. So, um, and, uh, and, and a lot of the resources that we have at the time also were really great. The program, you know, we have a lot of resources, you know, a lot of funding and jobs were everywhere and uh, people were getting jobs. And uh, people, you know, as soon as they come to Salt Lake City, you know, within, within three months, people were getting jobs. At the time, 
we were only doing, uh, you know, only three to six months case management and then moving on to the next group. And people were successfully connected with our community. There were a lot of volunteers, a lot of jobs and so forth. Um, and uh, this was an amazing program that helped thousands of people's life. Um, and uh, over the years that I have worked with, I have seen uh, people becoming so uh, you know, um, uh, integrated into our community. And, uh, and I can proudly say that this is one of the most uh, rewarding job that I have ever had in my life. I wanted to ask you when it came to your, the refugees that are coming to this country that are seeking refuge, what do you see is a common thing that they share in regards to what are they coming to this country in search of and what are their hopes and their dreams? Uh, I think the first thing that refugees have been forced to flee their home countries. They were not asked to leave. So none of the refugees wanted to leave their home countries. Everybody loved their country. And, uh, but the circumstances that, you know, the civil war or the political unrest or religious persecution or so many factors that led them to flee their home country, when they uh, leave their home country, one thing that the refugees are in common is that they are looking for a safe place, safe place that they can raise their family, a safe place that they can rebuild their life. And also, you know, refugees, when they come with any particular country, they are very appreciative of the assistance that they have given. I don't think I would ever pay it back of all those help that I received. All I could do is to, to pay forward, to help others who need help like me. And I think that's what every refugee is also in common, that that's the commonality that refugees that we all share. We're thankful. Uh, we want to pay it back of what we receive, and we wanted to contribute to this great country that, uh, you know, now we call it our home because uh, I, I lived here uh, almost half of my life, and I still don't have another country to to go back to this is my home and um, you know all the refugees calling this their home as well and all the children were born here this is the only place they known all their life and uh, none of my children know about Somalia except what what we're talking to them about at our home and, and so forth um, so I think that's what all the refugees are in common uh, with um, when they come here as a refugee they're not looking for a whole lot you know, all they need is just a safe place. They know how to work hard. They know how to contribute. And, and after all, they are low-abiding citizens. Some folks are painting a bad image to the refugees, but that is not true. Almost close to 4 million refugees were resettled in the United States, and no single refugee ever harmed this country or ever charged harming the United States. And that's the image that's being portrayed today that the refugees are causing harm to this country. But I know that you, in person, from personal experience, can say that, especially with the help that you received through Catholic Community Services, that you were set in a position where you were able to be self-sufficient and not dependent. What are these services that the resettlement agency that you works for and other agencies across the country are striving to provide to these refugees so that they could be self-sufficient? The refugees, when they first arrive, uh, the first thing that we provide to them is, that, of course, they need uh, all the basics so they can start a new life. And uh, I think those are the important uh, 
first uh, resettlement uh, reception and placement uh, funding that the U.S. government funds to, to have the refugees have these basics. But when you compare to what the refugees are receiving and what they are giving back, refugees contribute billions of dollars into our economy in the taxes, in the opening businesses, and, and, and in so many other ways. I think it is a very cost-effective program. While the, our government leaders are saying, oh, the refugees are costing us too much money, that is not true. Several studies were done that shows, you know, there's a net gain in the refugee resettlement program. Uh, and overall, our businesses heavily benefits from the refugees' workforce. So that's one thing. So once we provide this initial, you know, housing, food, and uh, school registration and health, then we provide case management. So to make sure that the refugees are getting all this guidance that they need from somebody that speaks their language, somebody who has been like them as a refugee who came before them. Uh, and also we provide employment services. We wanna make sure that you know, they get a job by looking into their skills and uh, what they can contribute. Um, and uh, we provide health services to make sure all the children are immunized and uh, you know, anyone who's in need of medical services, we connect with our providers. We'll make sure that every family have a primary care physician that they can visit when they need help. Um, and uh, we provide immigration services uh, to make sure that you know, everyone that left family members behind, that we help them to reunite their loved ones. And after all, all refugees want to become uh, US citizens. And that's part of the integration uh, that as they come into this country, uh, you know, settling in and help getting jobs, they, they, we want them to be part of America. And you know, um, more, every refugee wants to become American citizen. They learn the language, they learn the history, they, uh, you know, they become part of this community, they are low-abiding citizens. And I would say 100% of refugees pass the U.S. citizenship test you know, after they study. And you will see someone who has never you know, read or, or write their own language, learning English so they can become a U.S. citizen. They're very determined at the beginning. Uh, so within five years, they get their citizenship. Um, and, and, and someone who has never voted in their life. You know, you would see like uh, a 65 year old uh, person saying to you, thank you for helping me get my citizenship. This is the first time in my life that I have to exercise my right to vote. Imagine that a 65 year old or 80 years old person saying that to you that they have never had that opportunity. I think that's what the refugee resettlement program is about but some folks that don't understand uh, what America is doing. I mean, they know, but I think that what they're saying is, you know, uh, why do we have to take these people? They're better off in the refugee camps. No, that is not the way our country operates. And what's going on right now is that we're experiencing the highest levels of people seeking refuge worldwide since World War II. And it's a crisis at this point, not only in America, but also around the world. And I would like to know your take on that, if you could give us some insight on, on what you're witnessing right now. So the, the worldwide refugee crisis today reached almost 70 million people have been forcibly displaced. Uh, of those, over close to 30 million are in the refugee camps. Uh, these are people that don't have any place to go back to. They are in the refugee camps. They've been warehoused in the refugee camp. 
Most of those refugee camps also are in third world countries, the countries that cannot even provide to their own uh, countrymen, let alone all these refugees in their camp. So there's only three ways that international community always looks to deal with that many refugees. Uh, number one, is it safe for the refugees to go back to their home countries? That never happens for a while. And can they be locally integrated? And we know that it's not going to happen as well because those countries cannot take that many refugees. So the only option the refugees is left is the resettlement in a third country. That's why refugee resettlement, it is important. It is a life-saving program. If the United States does not accept refugees into the United States at the rate that we have been resettling for the last 40 years, I think the number of refugees being warehoused in the refugee camps is going to continue to rise. And it impacts that globally. You know, all the countries that are having refugees in their home countries, we don't know what they're going to do. You know, they might send people back. So refugees will have to experience, you know, all this inhuman conditions that we don't want any human being to live in that. That's why we're seeing a mass migration, people leaving refugee camps, looking for uh, a place, a safe place. That's why we see a lot of people taking the risk of going to the Mediterranean Sea, taking the land. You know, we're seeing people walking into Europe or coming to the U.S. through our southern border. So all these things are connected. It's a global connection because we closed our doors to bring refugees into the United States. I think that has an, a big impact. While those wars in Syria, in, in South Sudan, in Somalia, and many other countries continue, uh, you know, if we don't find a political solution for those wars, we're going to continue to see more refugees. And the, the longer we close our doors, the more refugees are going to risk their life. And we're going to see many, many refugees losing their life in those horrible conditions that they're experiencing. And in this country as well, in America, the ceiling for refugee admissions has changed since Trump has taken over. And it seems that just from 2016, that 85,000 refugees were admitted. And since then, now in 2019, there was a ceiling of 30,000. So that has drastically dropped. And how has this affected the resettlement agencies um, that do exist to help the refugees that are admitted into the U.S.? From 2017 to date, we lost so many staff that we had to let go because of the lack of funding uh, from the federal government due to low refugee admissions. Uh, we used to resettle 650 refugees a year. 2017, that number declined. And this uh, fiscal year that just ended, 2019, we were only, Catholic Community Service only resettled 150. So we lost 500 refugees this year alone uh, that uh, we were planning to resettle. So people lost their jobs. There were half of our staff lost their job. You know, we had to cut the program and... Uh, a lot of businesses don't have the workforce that they were relying on. The refugees that were doing a lot of the jobs in production, in, uh, in construction, in, uh, in the uh, hotels, in, in retail stores, and many, many other companies that always were placing refugees. Now, every day they're calling us and asking for people to employ, and, and we don't know what to say. And uh, uh, the economy, uh, the taxes that the refugees that were contributing to, you know, it gone down. And uh, I think the effect of the low refugee numbers impacted in many ways. Refugees 
that we have here already that came over the years. Some of them left their family members behind. Now they cannot reunite with their families. You know, parents coming to our office and uh, they left their children behind in the refugee camp. Like this uh, lady that uh, we are working, one example, uh, you know, she left two of their children in, in, in Uganda. She's been waiting more than three years now. The visa has already been approved, but we don't know the reason why 15-year-old or 7-year-old have been separated from his parents and that he cannot, they cannot come because of this uh, the strict rules that this administration uh, you know, implemented. And, uh, and we know that the refugees have to go through a, a very rigorous screening process. It is unnecessary for families being separated. So I think that's the biggest thing right now that you know, families that are coming and uh, we, they're asking us, and we don't know what to tell these families. All we could say is continue to pray. That's all we can tell them. Uh, we don't have any solution. And, and this administration, we can see that this last three years, the refugee resettlement, they take him block by block until they completely shut down the program. And I think that is what this administration's aim is, to shut down the refugee resettlement program so no refugees comes to the United States. Is this what we want as a country? Our community wants to help. The, the United States is a leader in the world when it comes to providing humanitarian refugee resettlement. All those 4 million refugees that came to the United States, their lives were saved. If the United States would not have been in the leader of uh, refugee resettlement in, in the world today, uh, God knows these people, what would have happened to them? There's still so many people in the world today that are looking upon us. And uh, if we close our doors and not to welcome them and allow them to come, I think as the United States is going to lose that role in the uh, world leadership. And also uh, our communities, you know, we, we have the will and we have the support of our communities to resettle refugees. In Utah, for example, there's no shortage of housing. There is no shortage of employment. We have thousands of volunteers that are willing to help. Let us help. You know, we want the government to get out of our way so we can help uh, to, to save these people's lives. Thank you for sharing that. I wanted to ask you, Aiden, how can this country and those individuals that do support refugees help resettlement agencies with the resources they need to continue their work? I think uh, the community can play a major role in the work that we do. Number one, uh, they can advocate. They could reach out to their congressional representatives and let them know what they want in their states, in their cities, in their communities, and uh, that they want to help the refugees. So the, we want to pressure our congressional leaders so they can pressure the administration to, to, uh, to have more refugees come to this country. People can donate to our agencies. They can visit uh, Catholic Community Services website and see what they can do, whether to financially contribute or if they can volunteer their time. Uh, you know, we have some families that we're still working with that they can uh, volunteer and be a mentor and uh, help these families. They can become a foster parent. They can take a child into their home and foster that child to give that child an, a loving and caring environment so that child can grow in a family home. But right now, Catholic Community Services, we have about 100 children in our care and there are more to come. 
that we're always looking people to to foster these children. So that's what people can do to help us financially, to to become a mentor, to become a foster parent, and and also to be an advocate. And I would like to lastly ask you, Aiden, why is it that you feel so passionately about this work and that it is truly important? It is very dear to my heart, the work that I do in helping others who have went through the same circumstances that I I have gone through. And it's the right thing to do. You know, all our religions, all our faith teaches us to reach out our neighbors, to reach out the strangers. And lastly, because I was helped, I don't think I can ever pay it back of what I have received. I'm very, very appreciative of the, the help that I received. I have a home. I have a safe place to live. My children received education. I've been given an opportunity to help others. What else do I need? I mean, I have everything that I needed. I, I wanted to be thankful to God who gave me this opportunity, and I want to continue to help. And, and this is my mission, to continue to help others. And you've done an absolutely amazing job for the last nearly 25 years. And I want to thank you for everything that you've done. And I want to thank you so much for being here today with us to talk about this crisis. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk to you and, and to share with uh, my experience and the work that I do. And I want to make sure that, you know, people that are listening or for watching this video, that the need is more. And we want as many people to, to, to help us uh, so we can continue the work that we do. I really appreciate it for giving me this opportunity and God bless you. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it and feel inspired and would like to be a part of the Relentless Minds community, you can join the movement for change on Instagram and Twitter. We would also love to know how your experience has been as a listener. If you haven't yet, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join us next week for another powerful story. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.